0: Well, good evening, Salem. Um, just want to start off by saying thank you. Uh, thank you for welcoming me, my family, this month. It's been a joy to, to serve you all in this way, um, to preach to you from the book of Jonah. And if this is your first uh, Sunday joining us this month, uh, we have been reading the book of Jonah together. And to give you um, an overview of it, Jonah is an incredible book. It, it serves both as a mirror and a window for us. It's it's a mirror to ourselves. It, uh, by looking at Jonah, we see the foolishness of our own sin. We see um, just what we're really like when we stand before God and His compassion. Um, and it's also a mirror. It's not just a window, but it's a mirror. We, sorry, it's not just a mirror, but it's a window. It's a window so that we can look out this window and see uh, God and His great compassion and grace. So the story begins by Jonah being called by God. He hears the audible voice of God, and he is uh, told to go to Nineveh to print, to, preach, uh, to preach God's word to the Assyrian Empire, to the capital of Assyria, to Nineveh. And in response, he flees, and he goes the exact opposite direction. He gets on a boat, and he sails to Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain. And he didn't want to go. And why, why didn't Jonah want to go? He didn't want to go to Nineveh um, because he was selfish. Because he was racist. He believed that grace was this, this special relationship that existed only for people who looked like him and talked like him and dressed like him. It wasn't for those people, those bad people over there. And so he, he flees, and while on this ship for Tarshish, he, um, this God sends a storm, and Jonah is thrown overboard by the sailors. And when he's thrown into the Mediterranean Sea, he sinks to the bottom of the sea. And there at the bottom of the sea, he has this realization that that salvation comes from the Lord, that idols cannot save him, but salvation comes from the Lord. And so he is scooped up by a great fish, spit out onto the ground, and then the Lord calls him again and says, go to Nineveh to preach my word to the Ninevites. So he goes, chapter 3, he goes to Nineveh. He walks into the city. We're told the city is three days journey across. He walks one day into the city and he preaches. He preaches this short little sermon. Uh, That Nineveh will be overthrown in in 40 days to repent in response to this. And they repent. The entire city of Nineveh repents. From the king to the cows, we're told. Everyone repents. Everyone puts on sackcloth and ashes and repents. And God relents from disaster. And that's how chapter 3 ends. Chapter 3, verse 10, ends with that, with God relenting. And we can be left asking, where is, uh, where is verse 11? Where's the next verse that says that while Nineveh is rejoicing, Jonah enters into the rejoicing of Nineveh? Where's, where's the part where, where Jonah is so overwhelmed by the grace of God that he joins in and celebrating with these people who now are part of God's people because they've repented? Um, that he rejoices in the coven- these new people who come into the covenant or will come into the covenant. But that doesn't exist. We don't have that verse. Unfortunately, that doesn't exist. And many of our kids' Bibles, kids' stories, videos, they, they end right here. right? The story of Jonah and the way that we often tell the story to each other, uh, they don't include chapter 4. They just end with this, with, with the city repenting. They don't include chapter 4. They don't tell us about the nastiness of Jonah's heart. They don't... Um, They don't tell us about what we just read, his sitting outside of the city in anger and defiance over God's grace. Now, why do they do this? Maybe uh, they do it to keep the mood light and positive and cheerful. Um, But in doing this, they miss out on the rich treasure of this story. By ending, by ending, by these children's stories ending Jonah at the end of chapter 3, they give us what we want. Jonah transformed and God not having to clean up any messes. But instead, the book actually ends with Jonah angry and pouting. See, we want to see immediate transformation, but instead we're given this. Jonah pouting, angry, outside of the city. Uh, So a few years ago, y'all are... I'm sure you remember this, when flash mobs were a thing. And uh, there was a group in... um, in New York called, the, called Improv Everywhere, and they were kind of the, the I don't know, maybe they're the, they were the, the major leagues of, of flash mobs. They put on these big, um, these big pranks, but they didn't call them pranks, they called them missions. They did this all over New York City. And they had people who would help out with these missions called agents. And there was a guy named Charlie Todd, who was actually the director of Improv Everywhere. And um, their mission, the reason why they didn't call them pranks is because pranks have victims. And their mission was to make people happy. And so they called them Missions. And there's an episode of This American Life where they tell a story of of one of these flash mobs. And it's it's called Mission 37, The Best Gig Ever. And so what they did was they decided to pick a struggling rock band and turn their small gig into the best show of their lives. And so they settled on this, they searched the internet, and they settled on this band called the Ghosts of Pasha that were from Burlington, Vermont. And they saw that they had two shows in New York City at the Mercury Lounge. They were booked for a Friday night show and then a Sunday night show at 10 p.m. And so they realized, okay, all of this band's friends are gonna be at the Friday night show. So we're gonna do our mission on the Sunday night show when there's not gonna be anyone there. And so they recruit 35 agents, these are just volunteers who say, hey, we wanna be a part of an Improv Everywhere thing. And um, they go online and they memorize the six songs that this band has recorded. They made t-shirts of the band's logo. They got temporary tattoos of the band's uh, logo on their arms. And so they enter the, cu- they enter the club separately or in, in pairs. They pretend not to know each other. And they come in just as the opener is finishing up. And by the time the Ghosts of Pasha are doing their soundtrack, we're, um, we hear that there's, there's three paying customers in this bar and 35 of these agents. There's 38 people in the crowd, and once they say, um, hello, Mercury Lounge, once the band starts, the Improv Everywhere agents explode with applause and cheers. Um, And as they're telling the story that there's like, there's one guy, there's always one guy who does this, right? Who who goes to the front and spaz out, dances at the beginning of the show, and um, the crowd starts, the energy starts building, and then people start requesting songs, and at this point, there's only, the, um, in the, the episode, the band members are saying that they've only released six songs, and not even an album. They just put them out on the internet. Like, so they're confused at why everyone knows their songs. But everyone's singing along to the lyrics. And like, people are going crazy, and there's these huge cheers. And then like, they're high-fiving, giving hugs on stage, because like, this is the best show ever. And then at the end, as the guitarist pulls his plug from the amp, everyone disappears. The agent's disadvantage. There's no buying drinks, no autographs, no hanging around for pics, And so the band has this magical, this magical dream-like high. The energy and excitement of this gig. And then they're just, they're dropped to the lowest low. The band is upset. They're angry. They're paranoid. They have no idea what just happened. Um, they feel foolish, punked. And they have this reality check. Right? They're not superstars. They are just the ghosts of Pasha from Burlington, Vermont. What does this have to do with Jonah? Well, Jonah has just, played, has just preached the greatest revival in human history. Largest revival, right? We're told that more than 120,000 people repent. And for all the hype and rush of revival afterwards, he is still the racist, runaway, selfish, foolish person that he showed himself to be in the first chapter And that he confessed himself to be in the second chapter when he's at the belly of the great fish. And this is a hard reality check because we really want Jonah to be different. As the audience, we want Jonah to be transformed by the message he preaches. We really want to see his transformation, but it just doesn't happen. And even deeper, there's a a reality check for us about God. That God is, despite all of Jonah's self-absorption and racism and running and foolishness, Jonah is, or excuse me, God is still the patient, gracious, faithful, pursuing God that he shows himself and confesses himself to be in this book and in the entire Bible. So we see Jonah's foolishness on full display. The author wants us to see it. God knows it. Jonah knows it. And there's a temptation for us to say, you know, God, you went too far with Jonah, and this has backfired on you. God's passionate, gracious, beautiful, persistent pursuit of Jonah has devolved into this foolish, stupid infatuation, right? We could say, like, he's like that mom who's celebrated when she bails her son out the first time, but is ridiculed when she bails her son out the hundredth time. Excuse me, right? Fool on, um, shame me once, fool, excuse me, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. It's time for God to cut bait, find someone else. He's never going to learn. God needs a new prophet. It's tempting for us to say, he's extended his grace two, one too many times this time. He's starting to look foolish here with Jonah, because Jonah just doesn't seem to learn. And we say this about Jonah, and we believe it about ourselves and about others around us. Right? We, we all have this, like, you've you got to cut people off at some point. And here's our problem with this. We have the wrong view of God's grace, and we have a distorted view of how change actually happens in the Christian life. And what Jonah offers us is he offers us a reality check. He shows us this mirror. We get an unflinching look at how humans actually are. And Jonah reveals to us that we are far more foolish and needy than we care to think. And he shows us that God is more faithful and gracious and patient and powerful than we could ever imagine. So my outline for tonight is simple. First we're going to look at the foolishness of Jonah and then the faithfulness of God. So first, the foolishness of Jonah. This is in verses 1 through 3 and verse 5. Um, Verse 2, you see that he's antagonistic towards God. He criticizes God to his face. He corrects God to his face. He mocks God to his face. He takes the name of God that God gave to Moses in Exodus 34. That he's a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He names God's attributes back to God and he calls them flaws. He calls them liabilities. Jonah attacks God because of his mercy to Nineveh. And then verses 3 and 5, we see um, his absurdity. He tells God to take his life. It's better for me to die than to live with you being merciful and gracious to my enemies. Then he throws the ultimate pity party. He has this incredible display of pouting. He goes outside of the city to the east. He makes this little fort, and he just waits for awful things to happen to Nineveh. And he's suicidal in the misery he created for himself. Right? He says, God, take my life. It is better for me to die than to live. He's antagonistic. He's absurd. And then we see that he's seething with anger. This is verse 1. Right? He, God has every reason to be angry, vindictive, wrathful, and to unload on Jonah. And he doesn't. And Jonah has no reason to be angry, vindictive, and wrathful. And he's livid. He is furious at God. Now, most people are, get angry with God because he's not gracious or he's not relenting enough. But we're told that Jonah is exceedingly displeased. He is super angry that God has been gracious. And his anger is this branch that flowers out into his antagonism and absurdity. I mean, his reaction, Jonah's reaction, is almost unbelievable. Do you see this? He's just preached the largest revival in human history 120,000 people. And the cattle. I love that detail. The cattle. And he responds like this. This is not the response of somebody who worships and serves the Lord. Like, why? What drives this absurd, mocking antagonism of God? What is at the root of Jonah's foolishness? What would cause Jonah to view God's gracious sovereignty as evil? Why is Jonah so angry? And the key for us here is to look at Jonah's anger. To look at his anger. And for his anger to serve as a mirror for us. So that we'll look at our own anger. Because our anger reveals our idols. Now some of you know when you get angry. You're aware of your anger. Other, others of you don't think that you get angry. You don't think you're an angry person because you really don't get angry. Could it be that you're actually angry all the time? Could it be that you have like a low level anger and you don't even know it? I heard an interview on NPR last year of a person who had chronic pain and the interviewer asked her, he says, are you in pain right now? And the woman responded, you know, I'm not sure. I'm in constant pain so I've learned to not pay attention to it. But I'm, I'm probably, probably in pain. Same is true for our anger. And if you're angry all the time, you get so used to it that you don't feel it. And it might come out as pessimism towards the world. Or maybe it comes out as distrust towards those around you. Maybe you feel burnt out. Maybe you're always cursing everything under your breath. Here's the thing. We all get angry. And our anger reveals what we worship. And when our heart is properly worshiping and loving God, we get angry at the things that make him angry. But more often than not, our anger reveals the idols we are worshiping. Well, What is an idol? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to be essential. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time and attention, my energy and, my idol, my energy and money. This is all of us. This, this is all of us. The human heart, John Calvin wrote, is a perpetual idol factory. We all have a worship disorder. All of us make the good things that God gives us into ultimate things. We make our comfort, our achievement, our success, our body image, our future, our identity, our comfort, our relationship status, our wealth, our desire for attention and affection. All of us take these things and we make them ultimate in our hearts. Jonah is just like us. He has a divided heart. His loves are disordered. He has a worship disorder. He settles for false gods to confirm and to meet his comfort. His convenience and his preference. And in Jonah's heart, there is a rivalry between the idols that he worships and the true God. Nineveh isn't the issue. The conflict here isn't between Jonah and Nineveh. It's between Jonah and God. Nineveh is the circumstance that draws out Jonah's heart problem. And his heart problem is a worship problem. And as, the long as, the true, as long as the true God doesn't disturb his idols, everything is smooth and workable and good for Jonah. But as soon as the true God acts contrary to Jonah's idols, this vitriol, this anger, this abuse just starts to flow out of his heart. And the same is true for us. As soon as God acts contrary to our idols, our anger flares up. Our hearts say... If Jesus gets in the way of my plans, Jesus has got to go. 17th century pastor Stephen Charnock wrote this. He said, each person acts as if God could not make him happy without the addition of something else. So our hearts have this formula that we say Jesus plus X equals my happiness. Or maybe it's just Jesus or it's just X fill in the blank equals happiness. So what is it for you? What, what is that equation for you? Jesus plus money equals happiness. Fame. Future. Me being right. My success. Jesus plus my comfort equals my happiness. That guy or that girl. Jesus plus friends that I can trust would make me happy. Good grades. Or my family being healed. Or making my family proud. Or getting into that grad school. Or having my boss's approval. Or Jesus plus My kids um, having their own faith or my kids' safety would make me happy. As I was thinking about this and and praying through this for myself, it kept coming back to my kids. Do I really trust Jesus regardless of what happens to my kids? Or is the formula of my heart, Jesus plus my kids' safety equals happiness? And y'all, as long as that is the formula of your heart, Jesus plus anything equals happiness... This is idolatry. And as long as this is the formula of your heart, your life will look like Jonah's. Pouting, pity party, outside the true party, 120,000 repenting and rejoicing in God's compassion. Your life will look like Jonah. Locked up, unable to experience freedom and purpose. And you'll be prevented from experiencing the joy of being fully human. Finding your joy in him alone. And you may think that your idols are helping you. Your drive for comfort or success or money or achievement or fame or your, your, your overwhelming attention to um, children's safety or care, you know, the, this, the way that they work as idols, you may think that these are helping you. But your idols are actually trying to kill you. Your idols are trying to kill you. I heard a story from a friend who's another campus minister with RUF. And it's a story, there's this, this lady who sleeps with her pet snake And it's not this little wormy garden snake, um, but it was a massive boa constrictor. And so this woman, she gives one half of her bed to this reptile. And she takes the other half, naturally, of course. And uh, she's quite obviously obsessed with this pet of hers. And after a while, she starts to realize that her, her pet snake, whom she shares a bed with, has stopped eating. And it's been over three weeks, and the snake hasn't put down a crumb. And she gets worried. You know, she gets worried for her poor snake, boa constrictor, that perhaps it's sick. So she goes to the vet, she takes, I'm assuming she takes the boa constrictor with her, um, goes to the the vet and um, tells the doctor what's going on. It only takes a second for the vet to figure out what's going on. And this is what he says. He says that whenever a snake is about to eat really large prey, it stops eating so it can make room. Y'all, God doesn't want you to be eaten by a snake. He doesn't want you, he wants you to be free from your idols. So he goes after the idols. He goes after the distortions, the approximations, the lies that you believe by turning on the lights in your heart. By exposing them, by illuminating them. He doesn't do this to shame you, but he does this to relieve you of them. To release you from their bondage. From the anger, from the slavery and the wasted time they create. So, I ask you a question. What idols are at work in your heart this weekend, tonight, this month? Fill in the blank of Charnock's equation. God can only make me happy if he gives me Jesus plus blank. What is this for you? And the foolishness of Jonah is that when he was in the belly of the fish, the bedrock of his prayer, this is what he said. He said, those who worship vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He knows this. And yet, these idols still have control over his heart. And that's what makes him angry at God. What's making this vitriol flow out of him towards God? It's what leads him into absurdity. His foolishness is his idolatry. And in response to Jonah's foolishness, we see God's faithfulness. We see the faithfulness of God. So the question for us is, what can change a heart? What can melt a heart that is that defiant? that calcified for us and for Jonah? What could unshackle a human heart from the power of its idols? And the answer that we're given in Jonah 4 is that the only key to your handcuffs, the only way to get that snake out of your bed, the only power that's strong enough to free you and to change you is the compassion of God. The patient, faithful, gracious character of God who takes a long-term view of our change and sanctification. Look at God's Faithfulness to Jonah. First we see he pursues Jonah with searching questions. He asks Jonah these three questions. He reasons with Jonah. He draws him out. He invites Jonah to consider his idolatry in light of his grace. He's not just there to fix him. He doesn't shame Jonah. He asks him. He says, why are you so angry? Is it good for you to be so angry? He's patient with Jonah. He draws him out into his love. So how do you get traction with your idols? Those things that you return to again and again, that you, you're upset with yourself for returning to them, how do you unseat them? How do you get traction with them? What tools do you use? Do you use a hammer? Do you mi- demand the change that you want to see in yourself? Do you beat yourself up? Well, hammers only, only shatter stony hearts. There's this old Mad TV sketch. Mad TV is like SNL in the 90s. I think it was better. It was really good in the '90s. There's this one. There's this one Mad TV sketch with Bob Newhart, and um, he's playing a therapist. And this woman walks into his office, and she says to him, um, "I'm scared of being." Oh, he says to her, "I'll five dollars. I'll fix whatever your problems are. I, I charge a dollar a minute, um, and I'll fix whatever your problems are." And so she says, "Okay." said, so it won't take longer than five minutes. So just give me five dollars. She gives him five dollars. He says, "So what's wrong?" She says, "I'm scared of being buried alive." He says, well, what else are you scared of? And she said, going into tunnels, elevators, being in houses, really anything that's a box. And the therapist says, well, I'm going to tell you two words. Are you ready? And then he yells at her. He says, stop it. And she's like, I'm not sure I understand. And he goes, okay, stop it. Any other problems? She's like, well, I'm I'm bulimic. Stop it. That sounds awful. Stop it. She's like, I have unhealthy relationships with men. Stop it. Don't you want to have healthy relationships? Stop it. Um, it's, a, it's funny. It's actually funny. Um, and, but it illustrates, right? Like, hammers don't work, and yet we use them on ourselves all the time. Isn't that the voice that we tell ourselves? Like, hammers only shatter stony hearts. But God doesn't respond to us with a hammer. His response to your sin and your idolatry isn't a shaming stop it. He doesn't shame you into obedience. How does God treat your idolatry? How does he treat my idolatry? What does he do with our hard hearts? He responds with rivers of mercy, which slowly over time change and wear down our hard hearts. Um, We used to live in Richmond, Virginia, and flowing through Richmond is the James River. And we used to love to go rock hopping in Richmond. And um, in the center of the river are these rocks that for thousands of years, the river has run over them. And they are so smooth because... The, the river, over time, over thousands and thousands of years, have worn down the hard edges of these rocks. And God's grace is like this river. The, the way that he changes us is that slowly, over time, he wears us down with his grace. He smooths the rocks, because his mercy is steady and persistent and faithful. And he pursues, mercy, he pursues Jonah in his mercy with searching questions. So perhaps for you tonight, question is: would, would you let God's questions to Jonah search you? Would you let him ask you, does it do good for you to be so angry? So he pursues Jonah with these searching questions, and he pursues Jonah also with a severe mercy. You see that he appoints a vine, a worm, a scorching east wind, and then the heat of the sun. And so what he's doing is he changes Jonah's circumstances multiple times. He allows Jonah to suffer so that his heart will be exposed. So that Jonah can see his idolatry and see his foolishness. What he's doing here is by exposing Jonah's idolatry, he's giving him the opportunity to repent. Maybe God's doing this right now in your life. Maybe God is changing your circumstances to uncover your idols, and it feels severe. But God is doing this so that you might be freed from them. So the question for you is what what feels severe in your life right now? What feels like a scorching east wind? What is bearing down on you like the desert sun? Maybe it's your kids. What feels like an inability to keep it together as a mom. Maybe it's your loneliness. Maybe it's your body. Maybe it doesn't function the way that you want it to. Maybe, maybe it's a persistent feeling that you're in the wrong job or the wrong house or the wrong neighborhood or even the wrong city. Maybe like Jonah, Jonah, has a, maybe like Jonah God has appointed something that feels like death. But is given to you so that you might turn to God and have life in him. Friends, your idols are trying to kill you. And God loves you too much to let that happen. God pursues with searching questions, with severe mercy. And finally, he pursues Jonah with his saving compassion. This is in verse 11. That if, if God is big enough to have compassion on Nineveh in all of its wickedness, all of its wickedness and evil, he is big enough to swallow up your foolishness to swallow up your anger, to swallow up your absurdity, your antagonizing all of it. He's big enough to swallow this up in his grace. And we see this where we see all beautiful things most clearly in Jesus on the cross. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's saving compassion. Jesus doesn't yell at us from the cross. He doesn't shame us. No, he's shamed for us. He's left out. He's heckled. He took his father's scorching wind and desert heat And he didn't get angry. No anger, but compassion. The fullest expression of his father's compassion. Friends, we are just like Jonah. We're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. Prone to idolatry. Prone to our worship disorder. We're prone to antagonize and correct God. And Jesus interposes his precious blood for us. God's faithfulness is made most clearly visible to us in Jesus And God's faithfulness to us in Jesus enables us to pursue faithfulness, to forsake our vain idols, and to dismantle them. God's faithfulness to us in Jesus leads us to see God as he actually is, to bring our idols to him so that he can destroy them. I'm concluding here that the end of Jonah feels like a cliffhanger, right? It ends with this question, this lingering question from God. Should I not pity Nineveh? But it's not a cliffhanger. The faithfulness of God swallowed up Jonah's foolishness. Jonah is transformed. How do we know? How could we know that? Because he tells on himself. We have the book of Jonah. Jonah told on himself. He was able to see his own life through the grace and compassion of God to tell this story, this deeply embarrassing story of his own life because of God's grace. He displays himself so that we might see the compassion of God. His life is a gift to us. It's a mirror so that we can look at him and take an honest look at ourselves. Our anger, our idolatry, our foolishness allows us to take a long, probably painful, but ultimately freeing look at ourselves. And it's a window. We're not left looking at ourselves. But through this window, we are given a vision of God and his great compassion, his grace his patience, his kindness, and his forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Jonah. Thank you that you are a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in love, full of compassion. Thank you that you pursue Jonah and that you pursue us the same way, that you are gentle with us. Um, Thank you that we see this most clearly